first of all, I want to, to say thank you for everyone for joining, especially thank you for uh, to, to our, our panelists here. Uh, we have uh, with us the lovely uh, Stephanie Shamsky from uh, FINDEF Canada. We have Valerie Marcel uh, with Associate Fellow on Energy Topics from uh, Chatham House. And we have also Michael Waldron, Head of Energy Investment Unit at the International Energy Agency. Unfortunately, I received the news earlier uh, that Carlos Barrera could not join us, uh, but I know about you know, Atlas Renewable Energies uh, projects. So if anyone has questions on those projects, I'm happy to, uh, to provide uh, an insight. And I thought it was interesting to have a point of view from a, an operator, but we all have uh, experience working with, uh, with operators on, on the ground in different countries. So I'll, I'll bring that, that experience also to try to, uh, to balance that conversation. Um, this webinar is uh, like another one of the series of the webinar with Woody at Ambili Advisory. Uh, same rules as always, these are Chatham House rules. So and we have Valerie Marcel from Chatham House, so we will be very clear on, on, this, uh, on this topic. We can discuss and talk about everything. Obviously, every question is welcome for this uh, for this webinar. The only thing we're asking is not to uh, you know copy a quote from someone uh, on this uh, on this webinar and attribute it to the person that said it because this thought you know that will not allow us to be uh, as as open in terms of our conversation. Uh, these webinars are made to try to share best practices in terms of, of ESG on finance on clean uh, clean energy and others. Uh, and so it just. Uh, gets into a series of webinars that we did on, on, on local content, on community participation, on these communities. Uh, those that join us and that have a, uh, that are, uh, regular participants know about this, but as I said, we're happy to, uh, to, to share the links to past webinars. And I would ask you if it's possible to just ask any question that you have on the chat and I'll try to pick them up uh, as, as quickly as possible uh, to, uh, to create, uh, to, to create a, a lovely conversation and then try to, to address some questions that, that, that you might have. We'll also, for those, I just use the opportunity to say hi to those that will actually see this webinar in its video format. Uh, feel free to reach out to us after the after the event. Uh, the objective here is to try to uh, highlight ways to try to funnel increased financing opportunities into clean energy projects in emerging countries. It's a large topic, and it's something that we are happy to uh, to continue working on in the next few weeks and month. Um, maybe just to uh, to to introduce a little bit more our panel. I, I'll do it, you know, one by one. Uh, we actually had the idea to to uh, to to launch this webinar after a very interesting publication from the International Energy Agency. So Michael Walzron is here uh, with us, uh, leading the Energy Investment Unit and actually the, the lead author of this, of this publication. And so he'll tell us uh, uh, more about it. I'll turn to you in one second, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, Valerie has extensive experience uh, in, in, uh, in especially uh, new emerging countries in terms of energies. We work with Mar Valerie, who've been a part of similar panel uh, on Guyana, on Uganda, on different countries that we actually might address during this, this webinar. And Stephanie, who I think we, uh, we already did a webinar a long time ago, Stephanie, on, on, on talking about you know, uh, formalizing activities and, and trying to make sure to uh, lead to sustainable development in emerging countries through large investment, either in the energy or other natural resources sector. And so it's very nice to have you three on board here. Uh, Michael, maybe if I can turn to you first, as I was mentioning. And so we, uh, if you can maybe introduce a little bit, obviously everyone knows the International Energy Agency, but it might be interesting just to frame it a little bit and explain how it works into this space of facilitating you know, uh, fi financing towards clean energy projects as one of the, of the energy uh, uh, sources that the IEA covers. Uh, I would love to turn to you maybe and just maybe explain a little bit that the publication itself and, and how the IEA works into, uh, into this space. Yeah, sure. And, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope I'm coming up uh, on the screen all right. Um, so essentially we published this report, Financing Clean Energy Transitions in Emerging and Developing Economies at the beginning of June. And this report was a culmination of, uh, of almost a year of uh, project development. And we recognized during the COVID pandemic that 
um, these countries emerging and developing economies. And when we're talking about this part of the world, we're talking about a wide range of countries ranging from you know, relatively higher income countries in the Middle East to fast growing middle economies in Asia, uh, in Latin America to lower income countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, although we're excluding China from this picture. So China we view as kind of a, having a separate dynamic. Um, and we see that these countries were particularly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they account for two thirds of the world's population. They only account for 40% of the world's energy investment and they only account for 20% of the world's clean energy investment. So there's a bit of a disconnect between um, their potential in terms of economic, socioeconomic development and the role that they play in energy investment. Uh, but that said, when we're looking at our scenario results and we're looking at our stated policies scenario from the World Energy Outlook last year, if nothing is done or if insufficient action is taken to transform the energy systems of these economies in aggregate, they would account for almost all the emissions growth over the next two decades. So China plateaus, uh, advanced economies decline, but still this would be the part of the world driving emissions growth. So we, we thought it was really the right time to, to look at this topic, particularly with regards to the economic situation. Um, and financing is, is really a critical issue in terms of uh, uh, putting these economies on, on the right path for clean energy transition. So with that backdrop, maybe I can highlight just kind of four big analytical results, which came out of the report. And we can, in the subsequent discussions, we can get a bit more into the kind of the policies and the, and the, the project level issues uh, that we also uncovered. Um, the first is that, so our team, we track investments around the world. We've done this as part of our World Energy Out Investment Report annually. And the first is just noting that um, the trend in clean energy investments. And so this includes investments across clean electricity, primarily renewables, um, energy efficiency and, and end use sectors, um, but also looking at um, clean fuels, low emissions fuels and, and carbon capture. Um, and we note that clean energy investments across all these categories have been stuck at around $150 billion a year in these economies for the last five years. They went down during the COVID, COVID pandemic. We only expect a partial rebound in 2021. But the IEA also published a report on net zero emissions um, roadmap 20, by 2050 in May. And essentially, if you apply that roadmap to this part of the world, uh, we would need to see a sevenfold increase in clean energy investments by 2030 to put these economies and to put the world on the pathway to meet net zero emissions. So this would imply attracting annual investments in clean energy of, of over $1 trillion a year. This does not even include some of the investments in related grid infrastructure um, or flexibility. Um, and it's not the entire energy picture. So, so it just speaks to the, the huge amount of capital which would be needed um, in this part of the world. The other so number two, in terms of kind of a big message from this is that we, we see this as, as being an affordable transition, but it's really, um, you have to understand how the nature of spending shifts in clean energy transitions. So um, in the energy system in the past, it's been because it's been based around fuels, around fossil fuels, um, you have cost structures, which are based on relatively high operating costs compared to relatively low upfront capital costs in many cases. But in clean energy transitions, the shifts, um, with the uptake of more renewables, with things like electric vehicles, um, that upfront cost of capital, upfront cost of finance becomes even more important. Um, and that's what's going towards funding these, these new investments. Now you do get, from a system perspective, savings from reducing operating costs, reducing the dependence on fuels. Um, this is particularly important for, for net importers of fuels um, in emerging and developing economies, um, as well as from efficiency. 
Um, but in general, your, the cost of transition is more linked now to the cost of capital and to investments than it was before. So the third big sort of takeaway from the report is that you know, given this backdrop, we looked at, okay, what are the types of capital which would be needed in clean energy transition? So we tried to model the sources of finance under clean energy transitions. And we find that, you know, looking at today's sources of finance for energy investments in emerging and developing economies, there's a relatively high reliance on public sources of finance compared to advanced economies. So a lot of this is state-owned enterprises, national oil companies, state-owned utilities, but also public finance institutions. Um, there's a relatively high reliance as well on equity compared to debt, um, which is also reflective of the, the current capital structure and the current uh, mixture in the energy system. So what we find is that if you're aligning with a net zero pathway, with a sustainable pathway, these sources of finance begin to shift. Uh, you need a lot more private capital uh, because renewables, energy efficiency, other clean energy technologies are predominantly funded with private capital. Um, but that said, you still need important contributions from the public sector in certain areas. So state-owned enterprises are still very instrumental in funding network infrastructure, for example, in emerging and developing economies. And the role of public finance institutions actually increases because you need more in the way of catalytic development finance to help mobilize this private capital. And then on the instrument side, um, also with this change in capital structure, the importance of attracting more long-term debt uh, um, be becomes more prominent. So, so be, you get a shift towards more debt um, in, the, in the capital structure of, of energy investments. And hopefully that debt can be lower cost. Hopefully it can be find ways to, to raise local currency, local debt um, with, with long tenors that can support those renewable projects with, with long lifetimes. And then sort of coming to the last point, uh, maybe before I'll, I'll turn it over, is uh, given all this backdrop, you know, one of the big barriers to attracting capital in this part of the world is the difference in the cost of capital um, versus in advanced economies. And we showed a chart in our launch presentation where we showed uh, advanced economies, the nominal cost of capital. Yeah, this is just looking at it from an economy on a wide perspective. So not even layering on the, the risk premium associated with, with energy projects, but look, just looking at government bonds and country market risk. And so advanced economies are, are below 5% on average in terms of the starting point for cost of capital. But when you're looking at countries in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, the cost of capital can be up to seven times higher in these parts of the world. They can be even, even higher if you're talking about riskier countries or riskier segments. So think, for example, the cost of capital for a consumer or for a small and medium-sized enterprise, um, the, the difference can be much higher. And in general, when we're talking about attracting this over $1 trillion annually, 90% of this needs to be in countries with, with banking systems and capital markets, which are underdeveloped relative to kind of the, the global average. Um, so all of this points to a relatively high bar um, before you even get to the energy sector for uh, access and debt finance, uh, for meeting equity return hurdle rates. So all of this puts a premium on having the right energy policy environment and having the right mechanisms in place to help de-risk those investments. And maybe in a subsequent intervention, we can talk about that in more, more detail. Absolutely, I think that's, that'd be very interesting to address. And thank you, Michael, for you know that that, that was a very good intervention to help set the, set the stage of, of, of this panel. Uh, I, I'm going to turn to, to, to Valerie now because I know the work that you've done at, at Chatham House. Uh, I wanted to maybe have you explain you know your vision on on, on the participation of Chatham House on on, on, on those questions and, and different countries. Obviously, uh, I did see preparing this uh, this webinar your participation as as uh, at the uh, Renewable Energy Energy Efficiency Partnership that might be very relevant. Please uh, introduce yourself. That'd be wonderful for, for us, Valerie. 
Thanks very much, Remy, and thanks for the invite uh, to participate today. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm, I contribute to REAP, which is the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Partnership. Um, and I'm deputy chair of the governing board of that organization. And what it, what it aims to do is to really advance market readiness for clean energy and energy efficiency in, in emerging markets like Africa and, um, and some, some uh, parts of Asia as well. Um, but the main um, sort of role that I will speak to or draw from today is where I'm the project lead for the new producers group. Um, and that's an initiative that's uh, co-organized by Chatham House, the Natural Resource Governance Institute, and the Commonwealth Secretariat. And the project has been going on since 2012, and it brings together about 30 emerging oil and gas producers. Uh, so some are at the exploration phase, uh, some are quite frontier plays actually. Um, others are uh, at the development phase. Um, so uh, some of those have very fast paced development of discoveries like Suriname, uh, while others are more languishing uh, discoveries that may not actually come to market. Um, and then others are new producers uh, like Guyana, um, Ghana and, and others. Um, and we also have some established uh, historical producers in the group to sort of exchange uh, on, on you know, their, their long experience. Um, and so it's really a peer-to-peer -peer network. So the, what we have is different opportunities for government officials to exchange on the challenges that they face and talk about strategies for navigating that. So we don't have ready-made solutions. It's, a, it's just more of a, of a discussion um, on, on what they, you know, what, what kind of challenges they have. Um, and I think it's, it's really an interesting group of countries that is quite unusual. Um, and it really stands in contrast to the sort of wide global wide view that we just got from Michael. Uh, here we're talking about countries that represent 5% of the world's population, but only contribute 0. Well, 0.04% um, uh, of uh, global emissions. So they have a tiny carbon impact, even though um, some of them are, a number of them are producing. Um, they have significant sort of persistent energy gaps. So even though we're thinking of, of producers and some of them are already have oil and gas production, they are not meeting their energy needs with those with that energy, the oil and gas production. Um, they have uh, persistent development needs, especially the members of the group that are from Africa or Latin America. Um, and, um, and what's really interesting is that they're highly vulnerable to climate impacts and have very low readiness to address those climate impacts. And indeed, if you look at the members of the group that have discoveries, major discoveries, and are in the production phase, they are all ranked in among, globally among the most vulnerable to climate impacts and the least ready to address the climate impacts. So that really shows the sort of, you know, the, the kind of very challenging policy environment that they are in because and, and it, it, it sort of helps understand 
why they're looking to the petroleum sector as something that can address a lot of those different needs, um, notably energy, ener you know, energy gaps uh, and development uh, and development needs. No, I agree, and, and that's interesting that you bring that up because a lot of the uh, of, of the topics that, that we're going to be talking about are, are very relevant for some of those countries, new, new coming producers. We we probably will address in this webinar, or I will later, uh, the, the, the series of, of investment we've seen in the petroleum sector, but together with clean energy sector, uh, making sure that we actually have those partners part of the equation towards you know, bringing more clean energy solutions, but also contributing to local development of, of, of the territory and the country. And I think that's, that's why I'm very happy to have you, Stephanie, also on, the, uh, on, on, this, uh, on this webinar of the vision from, from FinDev Canada of investing into a, a series of energy projects and mostly clean energy projects, but specifically looking at the kind of impact that it can have on, on, on general development from gender issues to sustainable development. So please, I'm turning to you because I'd like to get the perspective from uh, a development agency and, and, and fit Def Canada from how you select those projects and how you fit into this conversation between new producing countries, clean energy uh, mechanisms and, and, and finance, please. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Remy. And honestly, I'm, I'm really glad that Valerie and Michael went first because they touched on a lot of um, the gaps that exist in the clean energy financing ecosystem that FinDev Canada was really designed to address. You know, as, um, as maybe the newest development finance institution in the world, FinDev Canada was formed about three years ago. And as you mentioned, we have um, we, we invest in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, providing direct loans, guarantees, project and equity financing to private sector companies that are you know operating in sectors that are aligned with our impact development goals of market development women's economic empowerment and climate change mitigation and adaptation and you know as a development finance institution and an impact investor we're also really focused on exactly what michael was talking about which is blended finance you know finding ways to partner with traditional investors and and you know different kinds of, of uh, lenders that may not necessarily have the same risk appetite that we do uh, to go into these really challenging geographies or you know kind of challenging contexts and sectors and so we're there to kind of offer financing on terms that aren't readily available on the market you know whether it's the um, the length of the loan the conditions of the loan the interest rates of the loan so we're here to offer those kind of tough to find uh, conditions for financing and then partner with traditional investors and other lenders that are interested in maybe a, a little bit lower risk lower cost kind of opportunity so um, so we're here to partner with them and we're also here for what Valerie was talking about, which is, you know, seeking out those, those economies and those countries that do have kind of persistent energy gaps and, and are very vulnerable to climate change impacts and targeting those areas and those regions for renewable energy project development to achieve, you know, both climate change mitigation and adaptation impacts, but also, you know, positive development impacts including sustainable development goal related KPIs like access to energy and, and use of improved cooking uh, techniques and things like that for the local populations. Oh, very good, Stephanie. Thank you very much. And, and, and maybe just to, to, to build on this, first of all, I appreciate that people start asking questions. Do not hesitate to continue. We'll just blend them in into the, into the, the narrative of the, of the webinar as, as, as we go. Uh, but maybe turning back to, to, to Michael, I mean, you started mentioning in terms of the uh, in, in introductory talks, a series of, of type of policies that can successfully mobilize capital for, for specifically the clean development project that we, we want to, 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 to address here. Can you maybe just detail a little more on this, and especially since uh, uh, Stephanie mentioned the role of, of development and finance through FinDev Canada, maybe try to see how you know development finance can play a, a larger role in helping catalyze those investments in emerging countries. 
Michael, I think you are mute. <laughs> the first part of yeah. your, the first part of your answer was probably the best one. So please come back to the beginning. Uh, of the sentence. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but in this report, we went sector by sector and we analyzed kind of what are the key issues for investment and what are the key policy issues for investment in many cases. Maybe I can highlight you know a couple different sectors and some examples of of how those were addressed. So starting with the renewable sector with with renewable power. Um, sort of three big areas that we looked at in terms of policies or where that help sort of successfully mobilize capital for renewables. Um, one is having in a country level that presence of that long-term strategy um, in terms of the, the goal for renewables, in terms of target setting, in terms of giving developers visibility that there's going to be a long-term market to develop a pipeline. And then pairing this with a policy mechanism that helps to uh, um, award or sort of allocate, um, you know, renewable power, procure renewable power on a, on a competitive basis. So it really just to say, you know, the implementation of competitive auction schemes has been a big success story uh, in a number of economies around the world to attract investment. Um, but that kind of leads to issue number two is you can have a good sort of process for, for awarding contracts and, and procuring power. Um, but in many emerging and developing economies, the bankability of those contracts um, is an issue and how developers are able to, banks are able to manage um, and, and model the kind of cash flow risks, particularly around the, um, the risks associated with the, uh, with the counterparty. Um, so the, whether that's a state of utility, whether that's maybe another private party, um, we haven't seen the advent of corporate PPAs so much in emerging market developing economies, but there's certainly a lot of potential there. Um, so there's issues around payment risks um, and, and commercial arrangements is another one, uh, an area of policy focus. And then, Another or last big one is around um, having that focus in terms of uh, making sure land and enabling infrastructure is, is accessible. Um, sometimes this means putting in place things like one-stop shop, which are to help to aggregate permitting um, and help to streamline some of the processes around that. Um, when it comes to the grid, this is really about sort of long-term power planning, the financial sustainability of utilities, which could also lead into a, a separate conversation, but I'll just highlight that as being kind of the policy consideration. Um, and a couple of examples that we highlighted in the report, and of course these examples don't necessarily address all the issues, but um, they at least address some of them in order to attract capital. So one case study we looked at uh, was the case of Argentina, which is a relatively higher risk country um, in terms of investment risks, and they're putting in place uh, the Renovar program, uh, which was basically a combination of, a, of an auction, a long-term contract awarded by an auction process. Um, with this kind of programmatic approach to offering a guarantee, um, loan guarantees that were offered through the Argentine government, as far as I, I remember, and, and then backed by the World Bank. And this was, a, I think, the World Bank's first foray into doing kind of a programmatic approach to guarantees. And so this combination actually was able to attract a lot of capital and to build a pipeline of projects um, in, in solar PV and wind. Um, so that, that's one example. Another example we highlighted was in Indonesia. That's more of a, a specific risk mitigation where um, a development bank, I think it was the World Bank again, again, joined forces with the government um, to offer a specific blended finance or risk mitigation facility aimed at getting geothermal projects going. So tackling some of the early stage risks around exploration um, that, that make it, you know, raise the bar for, for geothermal investments in particular. So those, those are just a couple examples of some of the things we, we looked at, but there's a number of different examples in the in the report. Also, as I said, if you start to go into how do you start to finance uh, grids, transmission and distribution, how do you reform utilities? Um, those are all cases we looked at and happy to go in those directions if, if questions come up there. 
Um, maybe I'll also highlight some examples on the demand side because we see this as, as being just as important. It's actually the first fuel for the IEA is, is energy efficiency. Um, and there are some of the policy considerations are a bit different. So um, to mobilize investment for energy efficiency, you really need to have in place the kind of um, regulatory framework, which is around clear energy performance standards, uh, which get uh, more rigorous over time. Um, in some sectors, you know, these take the, the, the these are um, expressed through the buildings codes, for example, in the building sector, or um, fuel efficiency standards when you're talking about um, uh, transport vehicles. And, and so having that regulatory framework in place is kind of a first order condition. Another challenge with energy efficiency benefits is that banks are oftentimes not comfortable with the financial case. Um, and so having measures in place to help monetize the energy savings through, um, through incentives, through uh, market-based incentives, and also certification schemes um, can help with this um, and also help to encourage the uptake of, of, of new fuels on, on the demand side. So funding those sort of um, newer applications um, using being able to attract bank funding um, it's it's important to have the incentives that, that sort of reward those at the consumer and small business level, and and then another constraint is the the availability of low low cost financing options in general for SMEs and consumers, and so finding ways to through green loans or or um, green mortgages to help defray those upfront costs is is also important. And a couple of examples we looked at you know one in the building side. Uh, we looked at the example of Colombia where they put in place a, a, a buildings code and this was combined with a, a certification scheme that was that's uh, managed by the IFC uh, to help certify green buildings and this allowed uh, some of the banks in Colombia to raise funds to invest in energy efficient buildings um, in a way where they were able to securitize the projects and raise them at, at a lower cost of capital so it was that combination of having that development bank tool with the, um, the building standard that really did that. Um, in the transport sector, we looked at a case in, in Thailand where Thailand sort of used government incentives to help spur investment along the value chain, along the manufacturing side um, in terms of the purchases, um, and also partnered with the development bank to help roll out some of the first electric buses, uh, which things like you know, transport can oftentimes be uh, at the extremes in terms of financing where it could either be a, you need to have a, a consumer buying it or it, it's a big infrastructure project, which is going to be very publicly financed, um, you know, something like a metro system or, or, a, or a bus system, uh, which is gonna be owned and operated by, by the government or closely tied to the government. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the industrial sector, and this will be the last one, we also looked at um, some of the prospects for, for clustering through industrial facility, clustering industrial facilities with a case we looked at in Oman, um, which is trying to develop a, uh, an industrial cluster around the Sohor part um, which essentially combines energy efficiency, it combines uptake of renewables, it combines some hydrogen developments and the potential for export. Um, and so this is all kind of packaged in a way where shared infrastructure is made available and the government gives some incentives. Um, and not all of this has been built, built out yet, but we cited it as a potential model um, for helping to develop uh, new technologies in a, in a kind of, on the industrial side, um, in a scalable way. 
I'm very happy, Michael, that you mentioned the the case in Oman because I'm not, I, I, when I was in the Gulf five years ago, that's actually one of the of the, of the case that we were looking at when we went to Moscow. Right. That's actually a very a very interesting project. Maybe just before uh, turning to, to to Valerie on the specific you know challenges that you know emerging countries uh, in terms of mobilizing finance, I just want maybe there was one question on on the need for investment that also tackles the need for uh, you know natural resources such as you know battery metals and copper for the building of a, of of of, uh, of um, clean energy uh, solutions. Uh, is there like a publication from the IEA that actually tackles the need for for specifically natural resources? Maybe uh, Stephanie later down if you can actually tackle this because I know you have experience in battery metals in in, in Africa. That's how we met originally. Uh, but I'd like this this answer to this question to be answered if you can, Michael, and then I turn to you to Valerie. Yeah. So I, I mentioned at the beginning two of the special reports IEA produced the net zero reports and the finance and clean energy transitions report. In that period between May and June. We had three special reports, and the third one was on critical minerals. Um, and uh, and so I would just simply refer you to that report, which is freely available on the IA website, and that would have a lot more information in terms of looking at costs, investments, uh, fundamentals for for critical minerals for the for the clean energy transition. I, are you trying to say, Michael, that we do another webinar on the specific publication on critical minerals? <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we do this. But first of all, maybe just to, to challenge on, on that one, turning to uh, to Valerie. I mean, and I think that that's very important to try to you know focus specifically on emerging producers and the challenges that they face in in navigating this transition towards clean energy. Uh, I remember at my time at United Nations Environmental Program, we actually we developed some energy finance schemes to try to have Latin American countries you know tackle on, on their access to uh, you know efficient uh, solutions, efficient uh, uh, devices or appliances, or trying to have access to, to, to smart grid solutions. Can you maybe just look at you know uh, specifically the secret of finance for this transition in the country that you have operated, uh, Valerie? Yeah, um, it's 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 interesting because these countries really face an unusual cluster of challenges mm. that mean that they struggle to to attract petroleum investment and green investment to finance other alternative development pathways. So they've got limited options. Um, they struggle to attract petroleum sector investment because um, of the very immaturity of their sector. Uh, so because oil and gas companies that are listed are really under increasing pressure to, to um, decarbonize or reduce the carbon intensity of their assets and to reduce costs. And they can't find those kinds of opportunities in a lot of the emerging producer countries because they don't have the infrastructure um, to capture the gas. They don't have the market to consume the gas. Um, so they, there's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, risks related to geology as well. So in other words, they, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're often just struggling to attract petroleum sector investment, except countries like Suriname and Guyana uh, or others that have, are in the production phase and, and have good prospects for exploration. So they're also struggling to attract investment in um, lower carbon pathways. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because these countries are seen as high risk um, because they're developing countries and they have um, uh, they have immature regulatory frameworks. They have they don't have uh, ease of doing business, uh, good scores on ease of doing business. They have all sorts of 
of different obstacles that Michael has has highlighted. Um, and so, you know, even though they have, and, and because of their uh, vulnerability to climate impacts, uh, paradoxically, uh, they can't get finance uh, or finance isn't flowing to them, or when it does, it comes with a high risk premium. Uh, so it's something that recently um, Nadia Meli called the climate investment trap, uh, which is that, that sort of paradox that these countries find themselves in. So the $100 billion a year that's promised uh, for low carbon pathways uh, through the, uh, the Paris Accords is not really flowing to these countries. And so it's, it's, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, there's, there's a real opportunity when you're an emerging producer and you haven't yet engaged in the carbon intensive pathway that Nigeria and Trinidad and Tobago have, that you're not yet locked in, um, there would be big opportunities to help them uh, uh, see the benefits that exist for their economy and their development needs outside of the petroleum sector. Uh, and they're just not getting that. And then I think another thing to point out is that they're not getting finance either for gas to power. Um, so that's in that no man's land right now. Um, you know, these countries are using, I mean, almost all the countries that we have in our group are, are, are reliant on heavy fuel oil for their electricity mix. Um, they also have renewables, uh, but they have a large chunks usually of, of energy needs coming from heavy fuel oil. So gas to power would be displacing that heavy fuel oil, but it's not, there's so much pressure on the investment community not to see gas as a transition fuel. Um, and uh, so it's it's a bit of a catch 22 for these countries because they they just have limited options to meet those energy needs, uh, to engage in, 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 in to find credible options or avenues for low carbon development. Um, so it's, it's a, yeah, it's a challenging circumstance, I think for them. Absolutely, and I agree with you. And you mentioned Guyana, you mentioned Suriname. Indeed, now you've seen investment trickle down in more, you know, carbon intensive uh, energy production. But when it came to, you know, pro pro suggesting other projects that are more, you know, towards clean, uh, can transition, it's much harder to sometimes mobilize finance. And that, that's maybe the idea of trying to be able to, you know, underline the existing, you know, above the grand risk, obviously. And we mentioned the regulatory risk, but there are political risks and social risks in some, some countries and try to make sure to mitigate it. And maybe that, that actually leads me to, to turn to you, Stephanie. And you have quite the experience of, of, of living in some, some uh, interesting countries. And we have that, that, that in common in, 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 not, not in traveling around Africa and Latin America. How, how do you actually make the case for mitigating those of the grand risk and, and just making sure that actors such as you know FinDev Canada or, or others can feel secure about investing in clean you know development mechanism and clean transition to in, in the emerging countries because the market's there and obviously the need in terms of, of climate mitigation is, is obviously there. So how to, to assess and to mitigate those, those above the grand risks then? Yeah, thanks, Remy. And and you're right, we do um we do have a lot of experience on the ground, uh, really addressing these risks kind of head on and watching the consequences play out when you don't do a good job of it. So 
Um, I'd say that FinDev Canada, like many of our peer DFIs, we hold clients in emerging markets to the same standards uh, that, that traditional financiers hold clients to all over the world. You know, things like the IFC performance standards and Equator principles. Um, where, but the difference is, is that we kind of we make provisions to provide capacity building and support to ensure their alignment with these international best practices. So rather than expecting, you know, a hundred percent perfect environmental and social management system and a full team from day one, you know we really do understand that they they may not be in the same place in terms of the maturity and, and experience of their of their organizations with dealing with these issues so whether it's you know providing um you know working with our technical assistance facility to share in the cost of providing formal support like hiring external experts to help clients design these systems and implement them or you know applying you know impact related development impact related lessons on improving workforce diversity and equal opportunity um or providing informal support for clients, you know, where we're sharing resources and, you know, providing that additional sort of oversight and monitoring of their activities to really help them navigate particularly challenging situations or, or learn about emerging risks. Um, it really is this kind of additional service that we provide. So it's not just capital, though I am sure that they're they're happy to get the capital, uh, but we provide this full suite of, of kind of other kinds of support that uh, that really does play a role in helping to de-risk the investment and, and making it more attractive uh, from, from an investor perspective and also, frankly, from a development impact and environmental and social impact perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe uh, turning to, to, to Valerie, then, especially on, on, on oil and gas producing countries and how, how you know, that some of uh, the actors o o operating in these, uh, in these countries can actually be part of the of this solution. I just wanted to see you know, and discuss with you, you know, how can oil and gas companies support emission mitigation in emerging producers? And I'm thinking specifically, I mean, we're seeing some, some changes in some of the, of the deals that are being made. I mean, I'm, uh, Total Energies the, 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 in, in, in Iraq, for example, obviously signed a large contract in oil and gas, but also included a, a, a large uh, renewable uh, power plant for, for the Basora region. We're trying to start to see more and more the inclusion of, you know, that larger mix of energy uh, uh, when it comes to bidding on, 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 on development of, of energy solution energy markets do you see these trends continuing are there other ways for the uh, oil and gas producing companies actually to be part of the solution obviously because that that will facilitate the channeling of, of funding resources in terms of, of of those countries yeah i i think that deal is really interesting um and uh and there's been some interesting research also on how to um revamp change petroleum agreements so that they can they can facilitate those kind of bundled investments and and reward investment in uh, renewable uh, ener renewable energy or energy efficiency um, and not just uh, from you know the scope one petroleum sector project but really things that are completely separate from the project so uh, that's quite those are that's a new trend I think that's set to increase as oil companies have uh, listed companies anyway have really set their targets for net zero ambitions and and so I think that's going to be on the increase um, and then you also see just in in the way that these projects are being designed um, uh, in the countries with major discoveries in our group that there, there's really efforts to reduce uh, scope one emissions so um, you know an interesting case uh, was uh, the Uganda uh, oil discovery, which is a waxy crude, and so it requires a pipeline that has to be heated. Um, and now the the project has been redesigned so that they use solar panels to heat the uh, the pipeline. So there's also 
in Suriname, um, Total Energy again was designing the project so that there's a renewable uh, generation at the at production. And then Suriname is sort of seizing that opportunity to um, to to get investment in um, you know either could it be like offshore wind or offshore solar that would benefit Suriname's uh, consumers. Um, so there's there's now more and more of that focus. But I think that what's uh, what's interesting is that even though these companies are under pressure for ESG performance. Um, and you know, of course, like achieving millennium development goals is is a key part of that. Um, they aren't willing to put in money for gas to power projects. So there's a reluctance there, which I don't think makes complete sense to me, uh, because if you look at a project like in Guyana and Suriname, the associated gas coming from oil production is at such high volumes that it can't be all reinjected and it can't be flared. It's, there's too much gas. So you have to find a productive use for it. Um, and the unwillingness of the companies to fund the infrastructure and the, the sort of processing of the gas um, seems to be a big, a big uh, gap. Like it, that has to be addressed in some way because the, the only alternative is to drastically reduce oil production so that they don't end up with all that gas. And maybe you pointed out something I think is is is, is very important. Is when we're talking to emerging about emerging markets, emerging countries, we usually talk about countries where the institutional strength of the government or the the, the economy power of, of the countries is more limited compared to other other countries. And we're seeing in Mozambique, for example, the total energies project is larger than the actual GDP of the of the country by far. So how do we actually get the you know the government facilitate the capacity to have this kind of capacity of negotiating for more investment in infrastructure for the inclusion of you know renewable energy projects and then we'll move away from the classical trend which is let me develop you know the, the, the fossil fuel car, you know whether it's petroleum or it's, it's it's gas and therefore thanks to the subsidies and royalties that we'll get from this I will then reinvest in renewable energy and that that comes of, of this weird situation where you actually try to engage oil and gas, uh, you have to get you know all your eggs into the oil and gas production to then be able to, to diversify in renewable energy rather the other way around. Maybe if I could get your, your thoughts on this specifically in some of the countries, and then I'll turn to, to Michael specifically on, on trying to remobilize uh, different ways of, of financing, because I have a few ideas on this. W what's your take on this reaction between government uh, strength and, and the company itself, and how we, can we use maybe other actors to try to offset the balance and propose solutions that would be more comprehensive and therefore more efficient in the mid to long term? Yes, I mean, I think the, the you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good advice given to governments on how they can stop flaring, stop methane leakage, um, and um, you know all sorts of low carbon pathways that they can follow. But then the the practice is is a, on a completely different <laughs> like reality plane, um, and you know there's a lot of uh, conflicting incentives or different interests that are involved in this and. I think it's very challenging in, in practice to, 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 to do it. So for example, for flaring, you know, the, the, the governments usually will have a no flaring policy, but the Ministry of Finance will want the production to be ramped up as fast as, as possible that they have export revenues so that they can invest in the 
critical areas that they want to invest in. Um, but then the Ministry of Environment or the EPA is struggling to stop the flaring because it's and it's got no muscle and is under resourced uh, to be able to to really you know confront an oil company in that. Um, and so they put they get sort of skewed incentives because they can place penalties on the oil companies that are pocket change, but for the EPA is big money because they're under resourced and, and <laughs> under financed. So you end up with these kinds of situations that are make it, you know, institutionally very and politically very difficult to to stand up to to oil companies. Um, and I think, you know, now oil companies are the ones changing increasingly. So they're they're the ones instigating a lot of the the improvements in in, in emissions. But I I think we should never forget that the United States is one of the worst emitters uh, in terms of. Uh, you know, carbon and intensity and methane leakage. So high, high capacity, high regulatory capacity doesn't necessarily translate into improved outcomes. Yeah, obviously there's other variables from economic uh, situation to political capacity of lobbying different institutions, which is um, probably the case in the US without, without mentioning too much of it. But I think that that's, uh, thank you for making that point indeed that we tend to give a lot of, of lessons or want to give lessons to emerging countries where sometimes also in, in our backyard, we have to, to look at how to try to improve our own situation. Uh, but I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm very interested and thank you for this, maybe turning to, to, to Michael, there's, when we look at trying to mobilize additional finance for, for projects and projects that are not obvious to finance uh, because they're coming from emerging countries, politically risky countries or countries that don't have a track record into clean energy uh, uh, projects and therefore that doesn't reassure, that doesn't give the kind of, of securities to the investors that the project will actually happen, will develop well and that afterwards you'll be able to, to make a return on, on your investment. Uh, how can we actually mobilize other actors? And, and obviously, you know, the capital markets come to mind. I'm just flying back and I, I to the red eye from Colorado. That's why I have my, my glasses on in my little eye right now to enable conferences on, on trying to mobilize finance from capital markets for you know mining projects in that case but in countries such as Nicaragua such as Bolivia such as you know up and coming countries where the traditional you know financing organization will not go how can we try to get the same element for those countries the same structure for those countries to finance you know solar projects wind projects in countries that are very much on the side of traditional funding uh, opportunities, but where the development of those projects will be as critical, obviously, at the, at the global level for emission reduction, but will then allow the countries not to just put all their their uh, their future into either oil producing or other other uh, other generating income income generating uh, sectors. So please, Michael, that that's a tough one for you. I'm sorry, but that, that that's the one I really want to have an answer on. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I used to live in Colorado about 20 years ago, so it's uh, I know it's a nice place. So although I didn't, I never took a red eye flight from it. Um, so in the in the report, we kind of uh, had some pretty strong messages around kind of two broad pockets of of funding. And oops. <laughs> You're back. Sorry. We, did, we didn't see anything. Continue. That's perfect. Yeah, exactly. I did this I'll try not to, to move my arms at all. Uh, so we talked about kind of, you know, two broad buckets of finance, which is really critical to, to mobilize this larger um, uh, form of private finance. And, and one is the, the development finance institutions. And there, one of the main messages from the report was that, um, okay, these institutions have put forth sort of certain targets in terms of climate finance. Not all of them have. Um, so um, all of them across the board need to have a strong strategic mandate. There needs to be a more 
unified focus for development finance institutions internationally on finding clean uh, emissions reductions and clean energy transitions. Um, and this needs to be rising over time. And there'll be something more we say about this in the, in the World Energy Outlook, which, which comes out in a couple of weeks, uh, but also recognizing that these institutions on the international level can function best in terms of allocated capital when you have institutions on the local level, such as green banks, such as infrastructure banks, uh, which are helping to do that kind of local facilitation, project development, um, capital allocation. So really having this ecosystem of a robust system of development banks um, at the international level and at the local level, totally geared towards financing clean energy transitions is still something which is missing uh, from the international picture and in some of the countries that you talked about. Um, this is also related to this broader sort of tranche of international climate finance, which advanced economies have promised to developing economies. And so uh, meeting that $100 billion annual goal in 2020 is a first order, but this also needs to be raised over time. Um, and then the importance of blended capital and enhancing the deployment of blended capital in situations to address some of the examples you said before. So you have a, a mature technology like renewable power, but it's in a risky market. It's being deployed first of a kind project in a risky market. You have uh, mature technologies such as those related to, to energy efficiencies, such as buildings, et cetera, uh, but developers and financiers aren't really comfortable with the financial case. And so this is where blended finance can also play an important role, albeit maybe through a different type of instrument, maybe it's through uh, making available lines of credit and, and pairing this with capacity building to help the banks evaluate the, the case. Um, and then, you know, deploying risk capital maybe in the form of, uh, of equity to help to get going some of the early projects in low carbon hydrogen or CCUS, um, also grants. Um, you know, this is also another important purpose of, of blended finance is, is to help those new technologies to where they're not, they don't have uh, a commercial case uh, in, in any type of emerging market right now, although it's um, in, in some it's, it's more uh, cost effective than in, than in others. And so we also talked about, you know, ways to mobilize the capital markets. Um, and here we didn't go into as much detail, but we, we basically highlighted this notion that capital markets need to increase their allocations uh, broadly to clean energy and also into emerging and developing economies. So not putting clean energy aside, they're, they're under, under allocated into this part of the world to begin with. And so this re represents a step change for capital markets, sustainable finance frameworks as they're being developed in terms of the financial rules, uh, whether you know around the European taxonomy or around some of the kind of uh, privately led frameworks uh, done by uh, the different types of uh, asset owners alliance. I think there's a net zero asset owners alliance um, that's developed some principles or, or framework. Um, these are, are doing, making a lot of progress in terms of identifying the sustainable investments, so the clean energy investments. Um, there's challenges with the sort of transition investments, which also goes back to the points that Valerie was raising, um, the role of gas and you know how it can serve decarbonization in some purposes, but how it, it also uh, is tricky to, to address in sustainable finance frameworks. Um, and also depends on the larger energy system context and needs to have an understanding of, you know, how those gas investments will be utilized uh, over time um, beyond the sort of immediate emissions reductions potential. Um, and so that's one area, you know, the capital markets needing to develop more robust frameworks on how do you engage with some of these emissions intensive sectors on credible transition strategies, how do you monitor them over time, uh, how do you make sure that they eventually eventually align with, with the outcome we need to see, which is getting to, to net zero by, by 2050. And then another sort of piece of recommendation we gave regarding the capital markets is that, you know, 
also that focus on sustainable finance and you know let's say it's easier for an investor to invest in kind of the low-hanging fruit where things are are um, clearly low emissions um, rather than investing in a company or a country which maybe has a higher emissions profile where it's coming from a, a lower starting point for clean energy transitions and so when you add the risks of investing in emerging and developing economies with that kind of largely higher starting emissions profile compared to advanced economies. Um, this also means that um, sustainable finance tends to tend to underserve the emerging market and developing economies. Um, so finding ways to um, bring them in explicitly in terms of the frameworks being developed, but also recognizing the broader benefits to finding and saying the, the sustainable development goals, uh, which, which go beyond uh, energy as well, but which have important development aspects to them um, and, are, and are closely linked with a sustainable pathway. Um, so those are kind of the broad points we gave about how to, how to bring in some of these other sources of funding and, and the role that they play in the clean energy transition. Yeah, that's perfect. And talking about transition, you actually give me a perfect transition also to Stephanie, because you mentioned the, the importance of, of those you know, projects towards a larger scope of, of sustainable development. I, I'm going to ask you a question, Stephanie, but just for, before, because of, of time, I think afterwards we can actually maybe have a round of concluding thoughts. I've seen Valerie taking a lot of notes, so I'm sure that she has a few, a few, a few uh, you know, key thoughts that we want to keep for the audience. A question that I, I received uh, from from uh, people from the others. Obviously, the recording will be available uh, as always on our website. But also, if you don't want us for to, don't want to wait for us to package it nice for the video and the, the introduction, you can actually find it on YouTube very quickly, probably two days from now. So just feel free to to go there. We want this to be shared as as widely as possible for best practices. Turning to you, uh, Stephanie, therefore, and and we, we've talked about you know mobilizing other sources of finance, maybe to you know bundle with development finance. Obviously, uh, FinDev, if you could trickle down additional actors, private actors to to pass in some of your investment, I'm sure you'd be you'd be very happy. But my, my, my question on, on this would be, you know, how do you select those those projects? So I think that what's very interesting in terms of of having an actor like FinDev, part of those or others in uh, development finance, is to actually set the pointer towards those projects that not only have obviously a very strong interest in terms of producing clean energy or return on investment and others, but also that are very much integrated into another larger scope of, of, of areas of development and therefore you know, kind of setting you know light on those projects that might be more productive in having you know, positive uh, output and externalities uh, outside of just the, 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 the scope of energy. How do you actually select those projects and, and maybe can you actually bring up some, some ideas of best practices maybe in Latin America America or Africa, because I've seen among the attendants, we have people from a, a lot of different countries. That's a long question for you in five, five minutes. Please. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Remy. Well, I guess it's um, it's interesting to hear from Michael and Valerie, you know, what they've identified as kind of gaps in the market and, and you know, particular sectors or countries where financing is difficult to obtain, because I'd say that FinDev Canada is looking for exactly those, you know, tough contexts and, and difficult, you know, difficult financing choices. You know, as part of our investment approval process, we actually have to prove additionality. So we have to, you know, when we're bringing a transaction to the investment committee for review, we have to prove that, you know, there's no one else that can fund this, that we're doing a project that's the first of its kind in a country, or that we're meeting some kind of particular, you know, financing needs that exists that's not being met by anyone else. So, you know, tough countries, tough contexts, uh, new projects, new places, that's exactly what we're looking for. 
but you know, in order to have access to that, you know, very special financing that we are offering, you need to kind of go beyond the minimum requirements. So if you're, uh, you know, looking to develop a solar energy project, even if it isn't a challenging market and it's the first of its kind, but you kind of want to skate by with the minimum required environmental impact assessment and bring in a 100% male expat workforce and, you know, not necessarily engage in any creative benefit sharing or, or stakeholder, you know, stakeholder out outreach with the local community, then we're probably not the lender for you. So I think, you know, operating in those challenging contexts and also having, you know, the, the vision and the foresight and the commitment to go beyond minimum requirements and really look towards aligning with international best practices and finding, you know, sort of complementary development impacts. So not just climate change mitigation and adaptation, not just, you know, megawatts of renewable power that's produced, but also, you know, how many women and vulnerable people can you hire from the local community? What kinds of long-term sustainable development impacts can you have? How are we making sure that the power that's being produced is going to, you know, local community members and small businesses and, you know, becoming an engine to drive development rather than maybe going to support, you know, heavy industry or large cities that maybe already do have access to some of this energy from other sources. So, we're looking for a variety of factors, but I'd say the biggest thing we're looking for is commitment and, and an open mind. And so whether those are projects in, in Africa, like, you know, our, our um, investi companies that are developing solar projects in Malawi and in Pakistan, uh, our, you know, our friends at Climate Investor One who are doing Run of River Hydro in Uganda, you know, these are, these are tough places to do work and these are, you know, really interesting kind of cutting edge projects that they are doing. Um, and then they've also got that kind of great commitment to development impact, you know, whether it's having women on their management teams and boards of directors or, you know, seeking out ways to develop, you know, job training programs and, and engage with the local community. It's that kind of tough places, tough context, but, uh, but really like long term development vision and, and it's being kind of internalized as part of the company's DNA. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And, and actually, when we mentioned this, the capacity of making like a larger impact in, uh, on, on other issues and ESG related issues actually uh, even in, in non-sectors that are not renewable energy we see much more you know addressing elements of, of ESG and much more even for capital markets oriented uh, conferences that's a, like a step in the right direction but that really when you look at the capacity to make an impact obviously emerging markets and oil and gas traditional producing countries are are probably the ones where you can actually see the largest impact I'm thinking about you know Guyana, Suriname, Uganda, Mozambique other countries that we have mentioned maybe Valerie if I can turn to you first for the for the like, concluding thoughts and what you would like the uh, people that would watch this webinar to come home with like the one or two thoughts please that'd be great if you can uh, go there and then i'll turn to michael and, and, and stephanie for uh, for the uh, for, for the same thing ask any question on the on the chat if you have to because that's the last chance now but please uh, valerie first to you what would be the, the first you know two one or two concluding ideas that you want people to come up with well, in terms of the takeaway i think it's it's from from my perspective it's 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 really offering uh, viable, implementable options to um, to countries that could go down the route of the race to the bottom and producing their oil as fast as they can with disregard for reducing emissions and um, you know th those kinds of um, softer targets that Stephanie was just mentioning. Um, but then I think. Um, uh, I just wanted to add some points, maybe more with my REAP hat on, which is that, you know, I think some of the, some of the key um, uh, obstacles to 
to getting finance to clean energy or energy efficiency projects that we found um, is to have a project pipeline. There is finance, but there isn't the sort of bankable projects in a pipeline ready to go. And so the, you know, getting those projects market ready is one thing that REAP does. Um, and the second thing is that there's a huge exposure to uh, currency conversion risk um, because a lot of the grants come from Canada and Norway, the UK, et cetera. Um, and so the, the, the projects are, are often quite exposed to that kind of risk. And so there's a real need to have um, green, green reserves in local banks uh, in Africa and Latin America and Asia. And I think that's the other area where REAP is really trying to, to have an impact is to develop a green bank model at a, at a, uh, in these countries so that they can have that, reduce the exposure to, to currency uh, risk. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Valé. I'm just before Michael. I'm just going to take that question from Asher Ahmed. It's a very interesting question in terms of, of trying to you know tackle a challenge which is very present in terms of finding the right experts, contractors, suppliers for different projects, especially in clean energy. That's the case actually in most emerging markets, also for oil and gas projects. Um, if I can just put my my, my two cents on this, uh, when there's ESG, let's say assessment of a project. I mean those ESG assessment now need to include. And if it's not the case, that's a real problem. Need to include the, the capacity for local content. I mean we we've done a series. Of, of projects for, for community suppliers, uh, development programs, or trying to find the right partner of, of being able to, to, to be present, to do the training, to encourage the, the local workforce to be part of this. Uh, there are a series of, of new methodologies in place, new tools, whether it's community participation platforms, whether it is a series of, of uh, you know, webinars that can be passed or, or training tools that can be passed to, uh, to, to the communities. And actually this pandemic has been quite active into developing new forms of, of addressing those issues. But indeed, the, the capacity of finding the right partner uh, in countries that are, you know, sometimes you know up and coming, uh, whether from the Ghana Shield, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from other places in Latin America, is, is trouble. But there are, and we, we do it in certain countries. I know FinDev also is very, very cautious of, of being able to, to to point towards the correct partners. There's very interesting uh, networks also from uh, you know Global Affairs Canada, from them in terms of Canada, but also other other embassies that can be good. But happy to give you know more more thoughts to that question and and, and come back to your question, Ashim. But I'm going over time, but there's plenty of, of ways to, to address this and some of the webinars we did in the past actually tackle that. Michael, it's to you if I if I can turn to you for the for your concluding thoughts and, and then we'll we'll finish with Stephanie with a high you know uh responsibility of giving the last words of this of this webinar. Please Michael all yours. Yeah thank you. I mean I'll 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 be brief but I'll just note that there's um there needs to be a, a focus on improving the national policy environment. So there's a lot which needs to happen on, on the national level. Um, this has to do with addressing a lot of the cross-cutting issues that relate to infrastructure project development in general, also relating to the local financial system development, um, which we've heard, you know, development green banks is, is also a really good way to, to help that further along. Um, and then there's a lot of progress which would need to be made in various countries in terms of improving the specific sectoral incentives, sectoral regulatory frameworks for developing uh, whatever type of clean energy technology uh, would, would fall under those. Um, but I think you know, a big takeaway from our report is that, you know, as much that needs to be done at the at the national level and at the level of the emerging and developing economy is that there needs to be some sort of international catalyst to help this along in the form of international finance, funded finance, um, and also in the form of uh, related capacity building and technical analysis and kind of technical assistance and, and good analysis energy pathways to, to go along with that. Um, so that's what we hope, 
you know, people take from it that it needs to be really a collaborative effort uh, between um, the, the international community and the developing economies who need to need to attract this capital. Um, because at the end of the day, if, if uh, you know, uh, not all countries win the race to net zero, then nobody wins the race, which is you know a, a common phrase our executive directors has given. Um, so it behooves uh, the international community to make you know investment in these countries as, as much of a priority as investment in their their home countries when it comes to meeting um, global environmental goals. Perfect, thank you. And I'm going to turn to, to Stephanie, but just a, a, a few things. First of all, these conversations are just made for us to start, you know, thinking about new ways of, of tackling those issues. So when I'm seeing, thank you for the, the nice voice, I think it's interesting, you know, panel that went too fast and give them, like, we're actually going to be developing new ideas and new conversation on this. And please feel free to reach out to the panelists. Also, if you have uh, some ideas or questions and, and try to uh, to make the most out of it. Maybe the uh, uh, the last question, therefore, to you, I mean, I don't know if you saw that, uh, uh, Stephanie, maybe helping you on your concluding thoughts uh, from Ken McGee, if I remember Ken well, specifically interested in Ghana and in, in some countries in Africa, how much are the ESG consideration really considered when financing decisions are made, basically? Uh, I think that's, that's, that's an easy bull for you. That's what you love talking about. Can you just rebound on that question and just maybe give the, the conclusion on, on this panel? That'd be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I guess, I mean, it depends on the institution. I can only speak for FinDev Canada when I say ESG considerations are integrated throughout the transaction decision making process, you know, all the way from pre-screening to triage to the investment committee, the board of directors at every step of the way, you know, ESG risks and mitigants are, are included in the discussion as well as development impact objectives and, and opportunities. So for us, it's it's really part of the process. It's there just alongside the financing decisions and then risks, uh, credit risks. Of, of any investment decision that we're making. And I, I hope, you know, I think that's the recommendation that we're hearing from, from lots of different think tanks and lots of different organizations is that that's how it should be. Um, just, uh, I guess, just to conclude and, and say that I really do hope that uh, people that are looking for financing, projects that are looking for financing, uh, consultants and service providers that are located in these regions that are, are interested in, in joining forces and, and, you know, helping companies develop their systems and, and audit the risks on the ground, I hope that they do reach out after this, after this call and that we can continue working together to sort of close these financing gaps and, and support the um, all of the countries that are trying to implement renewable energy solutions and achieving their net zero goals. Exactly, and that was the first of many many conversations maybe to come, uh, especially on, on on topics things. I mean, I've been in Paris with the IA to talk maybe on critical minerals soon, and then obviously I talked to Stephanie and Valerie. Often we're going to try to get those ideas around. So feel free to reach out to uh, to us in the, in the next coming weeks and month, and and uh, that's we'll, we'll continue on, on discussing on, on how to achieve this financing to clean mechanisms and clean uh, sources of energy in emerging markets in the next coming uh, uh, month. So please, thank you very much again to the panelists more than anything for joining me this uh, this this morning or this afternoon for those who are in London and and uh, Paris. And I thank you also for coming. We'll just send you the, the videos when it is available. And I wish all of you a good evening and a good rest of the day. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much.